Hey everyone, you're here with Floater Founder for a very special episode. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here as always with my co-host, Liza and Casey. Hello everyone. And today we're here with Kelsey Ramsden at the beautiful Dovetail Base Camp in Algonquin. Um, if you hear some background noise for people who will be tuning in, um, it's the sound of 150 women getting together, discussing business strategy, and enjoying the great outdoors. Um, so Dovetail Base Camp is a weekend dedicated to great speakers, learning new strategies for your business, and building relationships with others going through the same pains and triumphs um, that you go through as entrepreneurs. Uh, we want to give a huge shout out and thank you to Alexis Dean for the opportunity to do our very first live podcast recording here. And a huge thank you to Kelsey um, for being willing to be on this live podcast episode. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Super excited to have you here. Um, so Kelsey, of course, has run multiple multi-million dollar uh, businesses across a variety of industries and now advises other CEOs and business leaders on how to scale their companies. Um, so tell us, when did your entrepreneurial journey begin and what was it like growing and scaling that very first company? Yeah, so I would like to say I'm like Lady Gaga. I was just born that way, you know? I think a lot, I often get the question like, uh, are entrepreneurs born or, or can you learn it? I think both apply. But for me, I think my very first business, well, I know it was, um, I would always enlist my brother in these ideas. He's three years younger than me. And the first one we did was we uh, lived in a cul-de-sac. And so we, during the day, swept the cul-de-sac totally clean and then set up a barricade at the mouth of it so that when all the adults came home from work that day, we would charge them to get home <laughs> on our nice clean street. And of course, when you're looking at some seven-year-old girl and her like three-year-old brother, you're going to pay them some money. And so that was the first business, you know, followed by charging kids to watch videos at our house on our beta because we were the only family from those of those people who, who were in the 70s know what a beta is it was like pre-vhs pre-dvd pre, you started pre. the first subscription service they, totally <laughs> and uh and so you know so i was always starting little businesses um but the ones that i'm known for started when i was 26 years old so i finished my mba moved to toronto was a consultant for a while and realized uh one day I walked into the office and I looked at my boss and I was like, if I had $100 to place on her or me to determine my future, who would I put it on? And so I quit my job and I called my now husband, who we were dating at the time, and I said, I quit my job today. And he was like, so what's the plan? It's like, the plan is you do not quit yours, my friend. I don't, I don't know have a plan. And so um, I knew I would do something on my own, but kind of to the, to the merit of accidental entrepreneurship, I think a lot of businesses start just out of, you know, time and space showing up for you to take the leap. And so that's when my construction business started because really the only thing I knew how to do was build roads. That's what I'd been doing as an employee for people since I was 14 years old. So that's how it got started. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And your, your companies uh, go from the construction industry to the, the toy industry. So how do you go about selecting the correct ideas? And how do you know when an idea is a good one and when you should take it out back and shoot it? Yeah, cool. Um, so the toy business is dead. Uh, because it was a terrible idea. So I can speak directly to how do you know when something's good or something's terrible. And actually, the toy business was a great business. It was just five years too soon. So I think for me, the knowing was, um, I mean, obviously, the metrics, like most people, like follow your cash flow, pay attention to if you're making money or not. But in that case, it was just a, a sense of, am I willing to wait out the market? Am I willing to get to the place where everyone is on board with this? 
Um, and we see that happen in so many businesses. So many visionary entrepreneurs are just too early. So it's not always that it's wrong. It's just how, how long are you willing to wait for it to be the right thing? Um, but I think, you know, candidly speaking, in the dark of night when we're staring at our ceilings, we know whether or not it's a go or not. It's just usually our egos get in the way of pulling the pin or plugging it in, you know? Yeah, for sure. And how was it kind of starting almost like an offline, like very much like hands-on construction business versus an online business? Yeah, construction just seemed super natural to me because I like the tangible, you know? I like building things I can touch and seeing things happen. The online thing um, was very awkward because I wasn't face to face with any of the problems in a really direct way in the same kind of way. And your client is so far away from you in, in a lot of senses. So online was more challenging for me. But I think for many people, it's easier because of, you know, obviously so many decreased upfront costs, right? To start a construction business was not inexpensive. Um, to start the online business was maybe, you know, two grand. So it's a it's an entirely different entry point. Um, but for me, the construction was easier. Yeah. Yeah. And did you take on any investors or advisors for any of the businesses you started? So here's where I'll show my ignorance. Uh, I didn't take on any advisors at all in a formal way. Um, even having had my MBA, you know, business people should know things like that. But I didn't. But what I had were a lot of mentors. Um, and so in a very informal structure, I had a lot of people who I would call up and say, hey, have you dealt with this? Hey, have you not dealt with it? You know, that kind of thing. So I would say to anyone who is thinking about starting anything or has a thing on the go who's thinking about like advisory, and sometimes that feels overwhelming because it's very formal. I think mentorship is sometimes an even better place to be. Uh, until you get to the place where you have like a really stable thing where you're really capable of of um, onboarding an advisory. But I was super fortunate um, from the finance side of things that the construction business really grew because I had worked in construction and I reached out to a guy that I had worked for and said, I'm starting my own thing. You know that I'll outwork anyone. How about if I get the bonding and you put up the money I'll do all the work and I'll split everything with you 50-50. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like a good deal to him because he knew me. And so that's how I got my money. That's yeah. awesome. That's, that's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, in your career, was there ever a time when you felt really lost or uh, didn't have guidance? And how did you move past that? Oh, man, I'm lost all the time. Like, I think anyone who's actually doing something really interesting or like groundbreaking if they're honest, would say, like, what the heck is happening at the moment? Um, you know, there are a lot of things that I feel I have a handle on, but if ever I'm doing something that's growth-minded, it's, it's usually, you know, we have the speed wobbles and we're just trying to keep it together. But I think getting out of that for me is always about, again, to kind of this notion of a support network, uh, which is part of the reason Dovetail is so awesome. You know, and having, uh, I have another collection of uh, female business founders. There's five of us every year we get together. Well, there's six, including me. Every year we get together um, somewhere around the world for four days and talk about, you know, all our woes and our wins. And, um, and so I think if you can find kind of your tribe of people who get it, because not everyone gets it yeah. at all. Yeah, for sure. It's a, definitely good to have a community of people who understand what you're going through. And I think the other thing about that is like taking the mask off, you know, um, like a good friend of mine, Tanya Jashan, who has steep teas, just recently come out about mental illness. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And I just think so much of it is like it's easy to, to get a tribe going, but then sometimes it's harder for people to really show up and say, look, my business is in trouble or, hey, I feel isolated or, you know, all the real tough things that come with what we do. And so I think it's a real gift when you do find that tribe and you're willing to take the mask off and just be real candid about like what it's like. And more often than not, if you're the person who does, everyone else is like, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something people share in. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about the theme of success hangover. Um, I've definitely even felt that at work, just that you've accomplished whatever promotion or goal that you want and you're kind of like, okay, yeah. now what? So how do you, when you're coaching other CEOs, kind of prep them that that is in the future for them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a variety of success hangovers. I think the CEO variety is generally like you spoke to. You had your eye on some prize, you arrived at the prize and then went, wait a minute. I was supposed to feel whole, but I kind of feel hollow. It turns out I'm a driver and ambitious and I'm never going to stop. Oh, my God, where next? But now you're on the top of a mountain. Yeah. And in order to get to another one, you have to descend the one you were on. And because most of us affix who we are with what we do, right? When you introduce yourself, most people are like, hey, I'm Kelsey Ramsden, CEO, blah, blah, blah. So when we have to detach ourselves from that thing, super frightening. Yeah. And so the first thing I do with any uh, person in that situation is we come up with a new introduction. That's awesome. You know, um, because arriving at who we are, not what we do, is I think the kind of the first step in unlocking the key to giving ourselves permission to redefine a new set of goals that may not look at all mm -hmm. like what we did in the first round. Yeah, you know? that's a really interesting way to do it. So as someone who's kind of seen both the nine to five and then moved to running your own business and then kind of after that as well, um, what are like the pros and cons of, of each uh, situation you were in? Yeah, I mean, the pro of a nine to five is you will get paid. And usually there's health and medical and usually there's holidays and all that kind of stuff, right? So like the stability and the known path, like if I do this, that will happen, which is really comforting. Um, for me, the freedom of entrepreneurship was just compelling it sounds, you know, a bit counterintuitive, but although you're on 24-7, you're also able to say, I'm unavailable right now or, you know, maneuver your schedule. So that was super appealing. I remember when I first started my construction business, I used to drive the paychecks out to the guys on Fridays before we got a little bit bigger. And one of my foremen was like, hey, Kelsey, I want to let you know that I never want to sign the front of the check. I'm always happy signing the back of it which was just his signal, like, I'm never going to go and be an entrepreneur. I like cashing your checks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, the, the thing about that is, is really, I think a lot of people um, get stuck in one or the other paradigm, kind of looking at the other one going, that's crazy. Like entrepreneurs are looking at staff going, how is that a thing? And staff are looking at entrepreneurs going, oh my God, that person's mm -hmm. nuts. Um, but I think it's just a comfort level, you know, and I have had friends who've done both who, you know, I have a friend who just sold her business last year for, you know, enough money that she definitely does not need to work, uh, but she's working in corporate downtown in Toronto and she loves it because most of us who are like us, success hangover type people are driven and ambitious to the degree to which stopping is not an option on the yeah. table. We'd like to think so, but when we get there, we spend like two weeks and we're like, mm, we're okay, now what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. And um, are there any traits that you've noticed that are consistent between the successful CEOs that you work with versus the ones whose company couldn't scale or didn't quite pan out? 
Yeah, so two things come to mind when you ask that question. One is this idea of scale being like the the holy grail of business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I meet a lot of people who are like, I want to scale and da, da, da. And, then, and my first question is why? Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they actually have either no answer or a really thin one because bigger is better. And a lot of businesses, when they scale, actually make, you know, as a proportion of input, a lesser output, Mm -hmm. which is shocking. Um, So the first thing is like, why are you even bothering to scale? But the second thing that comes out of that is to directly to the question about, do I notice any common traits? And I think the most successful CEOs that I know and I'm in a caveat if we're defining success in monetary terms with so the, tra- the traditional like, you know, um, Main Street success is, you know, picket fence, a bunch of money, 2.5 children and all that stuff, um, which I don't believe in, by the yeah. way. <laughs> uh, I would say it's their capacity to know themselves really well, which means know what they're great at, know what they're terrible at. And the ability to say yes and no at the right time mm-hmm. and to have patience. Okay. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, what's the best advice you've ever gotten and what's the best advice you've ever given? Oh, cool. Gee, I wish I had some like amazing answer for the given, but let's start with the gotten because I, I know that. So the, the fellow I was talking about who was my first partner in starting the construction business, even though he wasn't a partner but financer, I can remember him saying to me, Kelsey, I never care what another person earns in a partnership as long as I feel like my part is fair. And dealing in partnerships can be really challenging if you have the perspective of, are they getting more than me? As opposed to having the perspective of, am I getting mine? Do I feel like I'm getting out of this what I'm contributing to it? And I think that's been the greatest piece of advice that's allowed me to do a lot of different things with a lot of different personality types is recognizing and really staying firm in who am I and how does this matter to me, never mind what everyone else is doing and how it matters to them or what they're up to. Um, and then the the second, there are really three. The, the second is the mantra my father always said to me that I hated as a child, but I grew to love, which is life is like a jet engine. You get out what you put in. You know, it's just like, turns out that's true. Uh, I didn't I didn't like it when I was in grade 12. I was like, what do you mean I can't go to the party? Um, you know, and then the final one kind of relates to something more personal, which is uh, a song from, or lyrics to a song from like my favorite band, LCD Sound System. And uh, it's love is like an astronaut. It comes back, but it's never the same. And which I think applies in our lives, but also in so many people's businesses. You know, we're supercharged at the start and then it sucks. And then we're back and then we come and go, you know, and so uh, which comes back to that patience piece that I mentioned earlier, like really seeing the long game, I think, has has allowed me to do some things. Jeez, I don't know what the best piece of advice I've ever given someone. You know, it's probably my children. Like, don't touch that. It's hot. (laughs) (laughs) The real world advice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. And um, since it's 11 and we don't want to hold anyone up from other sessions, are there questions in the audience that anyone would like to ask? Kelsey, any questions? Yeah.
Yeah, cool. So I'm just going to repeat the question. So the question is about Sparkplay and why you started it, what happened um, after it closed, if you sold it, and is that a good recap? <laughs> Perfect. That's Fatima's right. question. Um, yeah, so Sparkplay started, what happened for me is uh, when, so we have three children, and when our youngest was two months old, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so that particular type of cancer had a 17% survival rate. And so uh, the odds were clearly not in my favor. So I called in management to run my civil business and my residential business and the other things I had going on. And, um, and so after my treatment, which it looked like I might be in, on the good side of things, and clearly and I'm speaking to you today, it tells you that I won that one. Um, I was like, what am I going to do now? Because I don't want to go back to construction. I was commuting all around the world. It was a bit hectic and I couldn't do it. Uh, due to my physical situation. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll start this kids thing because I want to play with my kids. And there's a lot of people who would love to who don't know how. And I had a lot of successful friends who were like, you know, on the weekend I have six hours with my children, but I don't know what to do. And so that's how Sparkplay got started. And um, at the same time, there was another who was a very small competitor in the market who's now ginormous. It was KiwiCrate. And um, the founder of KiwiCrate was involved in a network I was involved in as well. So I was like, well, I, I mean, she's relatively intelligent. I like her. She's pretty keyed on. If there's two of us doing it, kind of like the Keurig Nespresso model, like so long as there are a couple, it seems like over time, social proof will play it out. So that's how I started it. Um, but like I said, it was just like we were five years too early and I didn't want to take on um, institutional investment. That's what she did. And so... One day I was like, this is ridiculous. I can make 30 times more money building a house in three months' time than I can packing these boxes. I'm out, you know? Um, so I dropped it, and I, I there was a woman who approached me to buy it, and due to, like, liability and legal issues and all sorts of things and the transfer, my name being associated with it, and I didn't know her, and because at that point um, – I had been named Canada's top female entrepreneur two years in a row, and so I was in the press a lot. And uh, I, I just couldn't take on the liability of someone else taking the business over and making a mistake and it being recognized under my name for the you know forty or fifty grand she was going to pay me for it. So, um, so that was that. I just shut her down. I think the website's still live. I know I do pay for the domain. I don't know. I I should probably put a note up on it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd like to ask you about um, becoming um, like the on the Canadian Business Magazine, Profit Magazine, and yeah. female entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah, how is that process, and how did it feel to get selected for all of those? Yeah, I mean it's kind of funny. So I'm gonna like do the show every open the kimono here and tell everyone the true story about all these things. It's the same as like Oprah's picks list. Um, people apply, right? So. Although I'm named Canada's top female entrepreneur, there's a lot of female entrepreneurs who did not apply, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a it's a great award to win, and I'm really grateful for it. When the first year I won it, uh, I was uh, actually a little bit upset because I thought I don't want to be you know the best girl. Mm -hmm. You're yeah, it's pretty good for a girl. <laughs> um, you know, I just want to yeah, be the you best. Be the like what the hell? Yeah. 
And uh, but then I thought, you know what, like my whole career, my my kind of base thing has been I do not care how a door opens. Like if it's a friend of a friend or an accident or whatever, if you go through the door and you perform and you deliver results, like don't bother questioning how you got there. You're there. Uh, make make it happen. So I thought, OK, well, here I am. Um, and and we won a bunch of other words about like growth awards and profit awards otherwise and other lists and so i thought okay well it looks like you know on mass maybe there's something here maybe 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 i'm okay and um but consequently the second year i won the award actually i got the notification and i and i emailed them back and i said hey i don't know whoever does your pr stuff they made a mistake they sent out last year's email uh whoever you know won probably wants to know let them know and then they responded with, they're like, uh, it's you. I was like, eh, okay. <laughs> Embarrassment. Um, and then actually the third year I didn't apply again because I was like, this just would be, you know, a real jerk thing to do. You can't be like the person who just keeps winning. That's not cool. Um, and, and in fairness, there are so many other great women in business, but it just happened. So happens that the math that they use to calculate it, like, when you're doing business the size that I do business, the numbers just are really big. Like to build a highway costs a lot of money, mm-hmm. right? To build a bridge or a dam is very, or an airport, it costs a lot of money. So our top line is just insane. Um, and, you know, obviously we kind of do okay on the bottom. But the point being is that it, it's really challenging, I think, for a lot of women in business to look at someone like me and go, how will I ever make $50 million a year? And so although I thought it was amazing, it's also, I think, um, maybe not so much so in that the people who are shown like the, you know, Sarah Blakely and all these, I'm not, you know, calling myself Sarah Blakely, but all these people who are really highlighted in the press have these tremendously large, super well-known businesses. And if someone's just starting out going, I want to be here, but between here and there is so far that I, I, I do like that there's kind of this like highlighting moment, but but I think it's challenging for a lot of people to, because nobody gets to hear the stories about, you know, us in the beginning and mm-hmm. when we couldn't make payroll and when we were crying like a bunch of sobbing girls and, you know, all those things. They just see they just see the cover of a magazine and go, wow, that's amazing. Um, but I am super grateful for the awards. And, uh, and so that's how they happen. So if anybody wants one, I would say, you know, hot tip, apply. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, do we have time for more questions? I think we have time for one more. Um, yeah. So uh, what are some of the challenges as a woman entrepreneur that you face that men don't uh, in the whole like fundraising or running the company or anything in general yeah, as an cool. entrepreneur? So uh, I love hate this question. Um, because it exists, right? That's part of the reason I, um, but I think part of the reason that it exists, and this is not politically correct and, you know, people will hate on me for this answer, but part of it is because women have been a part of allowing it to happen. And so I think a lot of women don't show up for positions that they rightfully could have because everybody else is a man or whatever, you know, there's this intimidation factor. But on the flip side of that, I think, you know, the challenges that I've had they're real. Um, so I, right now I sit on a board. It's all men. It's all men who are over 65. I, you know, I was part of the Canadian Business Council, 150 of the uh, leaders of the largest corporations in Canada. There were three women in the room. Um, but I, I see it as an opportunity, actually. Like, most of the reason that I got started was because it, I was a bit of a freak show. 
it was like, well, sure, I'll have lunch with that 26-year-old girl who wants to start a construction business. That sounds all right. Uh, you know, whereas the other person competing for that lunch date was like a 45-year-old man. It was fine. So again, back to that point of like, just go through the door. But I think, I think the, the challenge I face oftentimes is um, being heard. And because there's a great Nike ad, Serena Williams Nike ad, where it's like, show them what crazy can do. I don't know if you saw that one, but I think that's a part of it because, um, and this is a bit gender stereotyping, but I'm pretty highly emotional. Like when I get, I ha I, my husband always says I have like two, two basis points, pure joy and ecstatic, like just so happy and rage. Like, you know, my pupils dilate and I will take your eyes out with my hands. Rage. Yeah, I'm the same way. Okay, so we're, we're on the same team. Let's go into battle together. And, um, and so when that shows up in the boardroom, I'm super passionate. Um, but I also listen really well. It's lunchtime, everyone. <laughs> if you have to go to a next session, we understand. Have fun. <laughs> um, so I think the thing about that for me... Do we want to? Yeah, we're good. Yeah. So I oh. think um, this is how we're flexible entrepreneurs. Yeah, camp sounds. Um, so I, but I think the thing that's really interesting about that for me is there was one fine day where I looked around. I was like, wait a minute. All these guys have daughters and mothers and wives and sisters and friends. And wait a minute. Um, maybe I'm bringing some of my own shit into, into this. Maybe part of this is just my own paradigm about like the men aren't listening. Maybe that's not the case. Because I guarantee that every male has one woman in their life that they ad admire and respect. And as soon as I had that kind of shift, I no longer felt like the underdog, which totally changes how I engage in those situations. So I'd say those, you know, the challenges are real for sure. Um, but I think that women have a part in that by just showing up as equals, like quit asking. Mm -hmm. Screw asking. There's no asking required. Yeah. Just show up, deliver results. And, you know, and see in the men that thing that they all have someone that they respect who happens to wear a bra, you know? Yeah. So show up and apply. That's, That's your advice. Pretty much <laughs> it. You know, I love show it. Up. Um, well, since it's the next session time, um, we should let you go. But thank you so, so much for being part of the first live podcast. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, that was super easy. Time flew. Yeah, it was great. And if anyone heard birds or anything in the background that's just a wonderful sounds of camp so hope you love it yeah thank you so much for joining us it was a blast having a conversation with you we wanted to thank you so much for coming in we had such a great time interviewing you for floater founder and thank you so much to our listeners we are so excited to share more founder stories with you until, until next time, time.